Let's stand as we read from God's word in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make the name of the Lord, take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm Michael Langer. I'm also one of the pastors here, although more in, in Payless at Redemption than here. I get to come up here once, once a month. I would encourage you to continue to pray for, for our church there, uh, for my wife and I and our family as we you know, kind of move through this transition to move to Washington, D.C. Hopefully be there uh, this summer as soon as our kids are done with school. But also be praying for our church. Uh, there is a lot going on. So in addition to the transition that's happening, uh, we have a pulpit nominating committee that is starting to meet, starting to think about the kind of pastor that they would like to have to replace me. Uh, so we'll be praying for them. Uh, but then there's other really exciting things that are happening. We have uh, so many people signed up for the new members class, and I'm having to do it on two different dates. 
uh, in two weekends just to accommodate all 13 people that want to be a part of this. So part of me thinks maybe I should have resigned you know, a while back if this was going to be the response that so many people were going to say, man, we're really excited about joining the church. So I'm not sure I didn't know exactly how I'm supposed to read this kind of overwhelming desire to join the church now. Uh, but then also be praying, we have uh, had four men nominated for the office of deacon in, at Redemption, which we very, very badly need, and also have had three women that we have kind of uh, pointed to and said, these are women that also have these gifts, and we want them to serve as well. So we're going to be starting that training. So please be praying for uh, Redemption Church as the Lord leads you to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to get together and hear the gospel from the law, to hear and consider the Ten Commandments and how they reveal our need of the gospel. And so, Father, we thank you that you have preserved the law for us, these ten words. Father, we pray that you would open our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds to receive the good news that we might be truly encouraged by these words this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So how are we supposed to think about the Ten Commandments? How are we supposed to process what's happening here? I, I was noticing this morning as I was sitting in my seat, some of the children were drawing pictures here of the Ten Commandments. We have this historical event recorded for us in coloring book form. See here, Moses apparently had a beard, nice, short, kept hair. He's got his two tablets right there. And many of us, if you're like me, you grew up watching every, I think it's every Thanksgiving or maybe it's every Easter, where they show the Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille from 1956. It's a movie that's kind of endured timelessly, where the entire movie is leading up to this moment of the Ten Commandments. You have three hours and ten minutes of prefatory information, and then you get to this monumental event, the giving of the Ten Commandments. So how are we supposed to think about the Ten Commandments? So if, if you're like me at all, then your first interaction with the Ten Commandments was when you violated some portion of it when you were a kid. We've all been there. Hopefully, you only violated one of the three commandments that you want to be able to violate as a kid, meaning hopefully the ones that you violated were you either took the Lord's name in vain you stole or you bared false witness, you lied. You violated one of the other seven, man. I, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different thing. But those are the first three that like, you come in contact with as a kid. And you get in trouble. And you receive discipline. And for most of us, that interaction with the law, with the Ten Commandments, I think has shaped in large part the way that we think about the Ten Commandments. We think about the Ten Commandments as a bunch of rules that we're not supposed to break, and if we do, we get in trouble. That's the Ten Commandments. They should be put on courthouses, and we should, you know, remember that, and that's, you know, violating those Ten Commandments, that's why we're here in the courthouse today. And I want to say that I don't know that that's entirely helpful. That that's an entirely helpful view of the Ten Commandments to just see them that way. And what I want to propose is that maybe what we have is an incomplete view of the Ten Commandments. That it's not, it's not fully 
filled out, not fully formed. And maybe we'll take a pass at that this morning. But what I want us to encourage us to see is that the Ten Commandments are a gift. That the Ten Commandments are a gift of love. That the Ten Commandments are a gift of love from our covenant God who gave us his name to his people. That they're a gift of love from our covenant God to his people. That it's more than just about not breaking the law. That it's a gift of love from our covenant God to his people that reveals God's glory. If you look at in your bulletins, you'll see we have them all there for you. And so what we're going to do this morning is what we're going to try to do is take actually three different passes through the Ten Commandments, each time trying to glean a different aspect of what the Ten Commandments are doing for us. And so the first one is that the Ten Commandments reveal God's glory. So what you have to remember is that the Ten Commandments are given after the people have spent 400 years of ignorance in knowing who God is. One of the big questions that they have is they're in slavery and they've been brought out of slavery and brought to this mountain is one of the questions they have is, how did that happen? How did we get here? Pharaoh seemed really powerful. Everything that we knew was Pharaoh was really, really powerful. We knew about him. We don't know anything. We know very little about this God that Moses seems to be telling us about that wants to rescue us. So, so who is he? And so bringing the people to this mountain is in large part about God revealing himself, about God revealing his own glory. And if you look, he starts right off with it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. What the Lord God reminds the people as he's revealing his glory is that he is first and foremost a God of mercy. So consider the context. The people are brought to this mountain and given the Ten Commandments only after they've been set free from slavery. In other words, grace and mercy comes before the law. As we saw in, in the last sermon, the people say, we will do all that God is asking us to do. And what you notice in that passage is God hasn't even told them what they're going to do yet. They say, we're going to do everything that you tell us to do because we want to be in this relationship with you. So what God's revealing is, I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God who rescues you first. And now let me tell you a little bit about me. And what he tells them in these first three commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Is that God is telling them that he is God supreme. That he is the, the most. That he is the primary so one of the questions we have is, wait, is, is God saying that there are other gods? Yeah, don't get lost in that question. What God is saying is, I am supreme. I am first and foremost. And I'm also completely other. You cannot represent me in any way. There is nothing that you can make that will be an accurate depiction of who I am. In fact, it will minimize me. So God is saying, unlike any other God that you've ever had any experience worshiping, let me tell you that I am supreme, that I am other, and I am holy. And I am so holy that you have to care for my name appropriately. So this is how God is revealing his glory. He's a God of mercy and that he is a God who is supreme, who is other, 
And maybe we would stop there. Most of us, I think, we stop at those first three and say, okay, that's about God. Now the rest of them are about us. And I want to say no. I want us to keep going through the rest of these commandments so that we can see how they reveal God's glory. Notice what it says next. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. That part of what these Ten Commandments reveal about God's glory is God is a worker. That God works. That God is creative. That God works and his work has purpose. And so God's communicating about himself. I'm a, I'm a creator God who made things. I made work. And I'm a God of rest. It's not all work, it's rest also. That I'm a God of work and rest. And there's proper balance. And so see this, first and foremost, is God revealing aspects of himself. Because it says it right there in the commandment. It talks about work. So we, we tend to focus on the rest part. But notice he's saying there's work and work was important. In six days I made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and I rested. So God reveals his glory through being a God of work. He reveals his glory through being a God of relationship. Honor your father and mother that it might go well with you in the land that God is communicating to the people that I'm a God of relationship. I'm a God who cares about relationship, that relationship is for our, our, our prospering. The relationships were designed to be healthy. And so we see God in this way saying, I'm a God who values relationship. It's important to me because God exists in relationship. And even though the people of Israel at this point don't have really a conception of the Trinity. It's not been folded out to them yet. God is revealing to them an aspect of himself. He's a God who values relationship because he's a God who exists in relationship. And God's a God of justice. So we started off with God's a God of mercy. He reveals his glory and that he's a God of mercy. And now he says, okay, listen, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet things that you don't have. God's a God of justice. He demands it. It's part of his being. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of justice. And in revealing that he's a God of justice, he sets us up for understanding what our big problem is going to be. Is that justice has to be dealt with. And so now we get this kind of weird thought problem. How are we going to have a God who says, I'm a God of mercy, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and I'm a God of justice. How are we going to make these two things be reconciled? How are we going to make these two aspects of the Godhead coexist and kiss, maybe as it were? So here's our starting point, that God is a God who gives us the law as a gift to reveal his glory. In all of these various aspects, we look through the law and we see this is God revealing his glory. But maybe we've come at it at, at another angle now. That the law of God, that the Ten Commandments don't just reveal his glory, but they call for a response. And in that response, maybe you would say that what we're supposed to do as God reveals his glory is that God calls us to reflect it back to him. And anytime we're reflecting back God's glory, we're, we're worshiping. And so maybe the, the better second point would be to say that the Ten Commandments exist 
to redeem our worship. The Ten Commandments exist to redeem our worship. Again, the people had been in Egypt for 400 years. They're completely ignorant about the kind of worship that God demands. They really don't have any concept of it. They've, they've forgotten most of it. So remember, as, as Moses is on the hill, he's given the entire book of Genesis. This is all part of when Genesis comes. It doesn't, you know, Genesis doesn't exist before Moses comes to the mountain. So God has to tell these people, like, listen, here's your story. Here's who I am. Here's how you're supposed to be worshiping me. That's what this really becomes about at this point. So what we have, I mean, those of us who've, you know, grown up in school, remember when we were like kindergarten, first grade, second grade, you, had, you were supposed to bring something to school for show and tell day, right? And so up to this point, we've had a lot of show. We've had the, the 10 plagues. That was a lot of show. It was amazing. Overwhelming victory of show. And then we end up with um, Pharaoh's army pursuing the, uh, the Israelites and being swallowed up and completely destroyed so that bodies are floating on the Red Sea and the, the Israelites see them. This is, as I said down in, at Redemption, that this is God's way of moving into the end zone, scoring the touchdown, and then doing maybe four or five different celebratory dances all at the same time while spiking the football in front of the crowd and then saying, do you see what I did? That this is God drawing attention to himself, saying, do you see how the show works? I win. I wipe everybody out. If you oppose me, I am the most magnificent, most awesome God there is. It's all show. But now we have tell. Here's who I am. Here, here's aspects of who I am as a person. Here's how you're supposed to respond to me. Here's how you're supposed to worship me. So how do we worship a God who is supreme, who is other, and is holy? How are we supposed to worship that God? And God tells us. It says, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or anything that is in the earth beneath or anything that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, or you shall not serve them. For I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's how you love that God who's revealed his glory. You love him exclusively. What he says is, you don't worship anybody else except for me. So the answer to the question, well, wait a second, is God saying there are other gods aside from him? Is that, why didn't he just say there are no other gods before me? He says, don't have any. Again, don't get lost in that question because what God says is, first of all, I'm supreme, and secondly, you can't worship any of them anyway. So it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. You only worship me. Why? Because I'm a jealous God. And those of us who are in marriage relationships or maybe we're dating, Somebody, maybe you're dating, you're having that first experience where you're in the lunchroom and the person that you like sees you talking to somebody else of the opposite sex and you think it's completely innocent. They were asking about a homework assignment. You kind of laughed, maybe threw your hair back a little bit, smiled at them and then answered their question very nicely. But somebody saw you. And immediately they're like, hey, what's going on over there? What was that conversation about? 
You getting all friendly with them now? Is that what that's going on? I'm a jealous God, is what he says. I'm a jealous God. I don't want you worshiping anybody else. And I also don't want you passing the worship that's intended for me through anything else. So if you're an electrical engineer, you know the way that this works. And this is important for God. An electrical engineer knows that whenever you pass an electric current through something, it, it diminishes. It takes a little bit of it away. I think that's right. Maybe it's voltage or current. I don't know. I'm not a scientist or electrical engineer. I'm just pretending to be one right now. But what happens is, is, is you have loss. And God's jealous. God doesn't want to have any loss. I want all the worship. Just direct it to me. Don't you have to make a cow or a mouse or, or anything else? Just worship me directly. Don't try to pass it through anything else. Just worship me. Don't bow down to them. Don't, don't waste any effort worshiping anything else but me. And that's not a problem for us today because we don't live in that kind of a society where we have little things on our mantles where we come in and we worship and so we're like, oh, this one's pretty easy to keep. Let me see if I can flush it out for us a little bit better. I'm going to add in, so you'll look down in your bulletin, you'll notice this isn't here, but I'm going to see if we can just maybe take a little bit of, shall we say, liberty. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or anything that is in the earth beneath, including houses, cars, bank accounts, jobs, degrees, friends, your kids, or anything parked in your neighbor's yard, including all of the things on that list. Don't worship those things. See, we don't need to have the little idol on the mantle, do we? Because we can have it in our closet and parked in our driveway. And we can live inside of it. We worship those things instead. God says, no, nothing else, only me. This is how God is redeeming our worship. He says, I want all of this worship for myself. So what are we supposed to do with this? So you notice here there's, there's no manifestation of God in this picture. There's no cloud or smoke. So what do we do with pictures of Jesus? So for those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with Presbyterian theology, I will tell you that in our larger catechism and shorter catechism and confession it says that one of the things that we're never supposed to do is to make any representation of any member of the Godhead real or imagined. And good Presbyterians disagree on, on how we should do this. There are Sunday school curriculums that don't have any representations of Jesus at all in them because they're trying to keep this. I have, in particular, I have an exception to this. I think that it is nearly impossible to do now that Christ has come. So when I read in the Gospels that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and I picture in my head a guy on a donkey, I don't want to think, man, Luke, you just got me in trouble. Like I just pictured a guy on a donkey and now I'm in sin. So here's the way that I, that I like to look at this is that what we can't do is you're not supposed to worship those images. And we have to understand that's not a real, real Jesus. It's a representation of him as a historical person who actually lived. We know he was a man. We know he had ears, eyes, nose and a mouth. They were all in the right places. He had arms and legs. And we can say that was a historical event that happened. But again, good Presbyterians disagree on that. Well, let's get to the, the meatier stuff. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's a tough one, isn't it? Especially if you're outside doing a construction project. It's hard sometimes. Not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The ancient Hebrews were so worried about this that they didn't even want to write it. They just used used like initials basically to try to represent this because they were so afraid. I don't want to, I don't want to minimize this, the name of God. And, but we do. We use it as a curse word. Like, so the, the one way in which we minimize this, the way we take the name of the Lord God in vain, is, is through profanity. Think about that. We take one of the greatest, the greatest person who's ever lived, and we turn his name into profanity. We say things that put us almost in the position of God by saying things like, God, damn, you. Do you understand what you just did when you said that? You're a- either you're asking God to condemn somebody, which you do not have the right to do, That is an offense beyond offenses when you put yourself in that position. Or you're actually using it as curse. We're not supposed to do that. In our own house, I'm mocked for this. I have a a coffee mug that actually is a mockery of this because I I don't. I, I try very hard not to ever do these things. But what I do say when something goes really bad is I say, Oh, Nellie Olson's mother. Because it's the worst person that I can think of. (laughs) <laughs> to use to convey my frustration. So whenever something bad happens, I'm like, oh, Nellie Olson's mother. And so one Christmas several years ago, my son got me a picture of Nellie Olson's mother, Harriet Olson from Little House on the Prairie. For those of you who haven't been raised properly, go back and talk to your parents. You need to watch Little House on the Prairie. This is, this is my invective. But it also, so yes, so we want to worship God correctly in our minds, in our hearts, and in our speech. But also, again, let's go through the rest of the Ten Commandments. In our work life, that God created work for us to do, to give us purpose, and that our, if we believe that all of life is worship, then our work is worship as well. But without the contrast of Sabbath, of remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy then work becomes the object of our worship. And God says, no, you can't do that. Like, work is an important thing. It is a good thing. I've, I've given it to you. I want you to use your gifts and direct them to me. All of work is worship, but there has to be Sabbath. There has to be rest. There has to be a day that you set apart for me to rest, because in doing so, you're reflecting me. We're just reflecting back what God's already revealed about himself. He's a God of work, and he's a God of rest. And when we wipe that out, we we don't reflect God's glory the way that he intended. And we do it in two ways. Some of us just don't pay any attention and just work seven days a week. And in that way, we just completely blow it. There's There's no day set aside for Sabbath. Others of us, we just turn Sunday into an extra Saturday. That's what one of the commentators said. That Sunday just becomes like a second Saturday to us. And in that way, we've also done exactly the same thing. That we have not set a day apart for worshiping the Lord. 
And so he redeems our work life. He redeems our family life as worship. If you look at this commandment, it seems as though this commandment is actually given to the children. Obey your mother and father in the Lord that it might go well with you and you might live long in the land. So maybe this commandment is actually given to the children. They would honor their families, correct, that our family life, the way we operate as a family, is worship. So how we reflect God's glory. But maybe the way that I like to see it is that what God's doing here is God's letting the parents know that their children are supposed to honor their mother and father. And that's just going to make it really hard, isn't it? That the way in which we love our children is supposed to elicit from them honor. If we were to read the commandment that way, that says something about the way that we're parenting our children. That the way that we interact with our children is how we're reflecting God's glory. And that he redeems our worship and redeeming our community life as worship. In Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the people that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And in Leviticus, it says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so what this is saying is that the way that we operate, the way that we live in community is part of our worship. It's part of how we're reflecting back God's glory. That the way that we interact with our neighbor, the way that we care for our neighbor, the way that we don't violate our neighbor is part of reflecting back God's glory. If you listen to the news and you hear some of these atrocities, what they'll usually try to define them as is these are crimes against humanity. And I want to say that falls far short of what's actually happening. These aren't, these, yes, sure, they're crimes against humanity, but you know what they really are? They're crimes against Yahweh. They're crimes against God. That's what they really are. They're really crimes against God. When you go in and you rape and you murder and you pillage and you destroy a village because of their race, because you want their land, when you treat your neighbor that way, you are throwing the worship that God is supposed to be receiving from the way in which you're interacting with your neighbor. You're destroying it and say, I don't care anything about that. It makes God very angry. And so God is redeeming our worship about how we think about him, about how we speak about him. Our work life is worship, our family life is worship, our community life is worship. And finally, the Ten Commandments are a gift from God that leads and promotes our flourishing. Again, 400 years has taught the people that the way that a community flourishes looks like it did in Egypt, where things were amazing. As far as they were concerned, God says, no, that's not what flourishing looks like. That's not what a prospering society looks like. Let me tell you what a prospering society looks like. Let me tell you how to have a beautiful society. You don't worship in vain. You worship the one true God. That when you're worshiping, your worship is actually going to the God who loves you, who sets you free. No worshiping in vain. That your work is important. That a prospering society is a society that works well and rests well. Notice that in this commandment about work, notice what it says. Because there's a couple of these that have a lot of information about them. It doesn't just say, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy and move on. It says, listen, six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. The way that we're going to have a prospering and a flourishing society 
is there's going to be work and there's going to be rest for everybody. We're going to treat our neighbors well in the work environment. The people that we manage, we're going to manage them properly. We're going to reflect God's glory back in the way that we ask them to work for us. We're going to treat them right and treat them justly. And that brings about a prospering society. In our homes, we're going to have a prospering society. I've seen this. This has been going around on, on Facebook a bit late, lately. And there is a, there's a, you get about 100 people here on like a football field. And he says, we're going to have a contest. We're going to run to the other end of the field. He said, but before we do, I want to just kind of set this up a little bit. I want everybody here whose parents are still married to go to the 20-yard line. And then there's other things that they do. If your parents are are helping you to pay for college, go to the 30-yard line. And when you look back, you know, the people who are up the front are the people that you think are going to be at the front. People at the back are the people who you think are going to be at the back. And what you realize is that the family is central to a flourishing society. That when homes are broken, when children don't have the advantages of having a a mom and a dad, and I understand there are broken homes here. I, I, I do understand that. And you feel the pain of that. You feel the pain of that because the the family is important to the way that God calls us to live and and towards promoting a a flourishing society. And even in our communities, the way that we interact with our neighbors is about promoting a flourishing community. Try to imagine a flourishing community where there's no laws, where everybody does what's right in their own mind, where the community operates off self-defined worship, hatred, Rage, jealousy, revenge, lust, materialism, power, and envy. Imagine if that's how society ran. Try to imagine a society, work really hard now, try to imagine a society where those were the driving movers of the economy. Rage and jealousy and envy. I wonder what culture we might pick. And how do the people respond to this? They're terrified. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God talk to us anymore. He needs to stop talking, lest we die. Why are they so terrified? Because they got it. What God says is, in my Ten Commandments, I'm going to reveal my glory, and it's going to be more than you can handle. I'm going to direct your worship, and it's going to be more than you can handle. And I'm going to tell you how you're going to live as a society, and it's going to be more than you can handle. And they get it, and they're terrified, and they're like, please tell them to stop talking, lest we die. And they back up. They're like, whoa, we we need to stand far off, because that's terrifying to us. So what I want to do again this morning is I want to encourage us that the Ten Commandments are a gift. It reveals God's glory. It redeems our worship. It promotes our flourishing. But we're left in this place. Some of you are saying, you haven't mentioned Jesus. You haven't mentioned the gospel. I'm ready to do it right now. Because the people have gotten to this place and they say, what you just told us, we can't do it. We have no hope. We're going to die. How will any of this be reconciled? Well now, 
that brings us to the good news of the gospel. The people back up because they recognize that they've sinned, that they have fallen short. And so in your bulletins, you see our confession of sin. Let's confess together this morning. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. Let's confess silently. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. How, how, can, we, how can we approach a God who's revealed his glory in this way, who seeks to redeem our worship and direct it all towards himself in our work, in our families, and in our communities? And lead us towards a prospering and flourishing. How can we do it when we're this broken? Hear the good news of the gospel. For Jesus Christ himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in in its ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. You do not need to back away. Let's pray.